love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hello, Freak family. We are so delighted you've joined us again for another episode of whatever the hell it is that we do. (laughs) But we do it regularly. So I think consistency is the key. (laughs) Whether or not it's good, eh. We just keep doing it. Right. Um, Keep your head down and keep marching forward. But one of the things, seriously, one of the things that I love about this community that sprung up around the podcast is the interaction that we get. And here's a good example of it. Uh, The last episode I talked about electroshock therapy or what they call today electroconvulsive therapy. And we were talking about how we really didn't know that much about it. In fact, we were surprised to learn that they actually still do a form of it today. And we got a um, a message on Facebook from one of the freaks that said, at the end of 2016, I entered several bipolar uh, manic episodes after not taking my meds for a while. Oops. I was hospitalized in a psych ward and ICU for two months. Wow. I wasn't sleeping. On good nights, I'd get maybe two hours of sleep. I was hallucinating. I, I was paranoid. I uh, really wasn't myself. I don't remember much from this time. Apparently, they tried every medication that they could think of at the highest doses they could give me, but there was no response. It wasn't until I started ECT that I began to recover from my mania. This isn't to say it was a great experience. Um, I had to fast before each session, receive an injection to be put under, then recover, usually with major headaches and throwing up and soreness. But it seemed like the only thing that uh, that could have brought me out of my episode. At least that's what my, my doctors and my parents said. I continued treatment for a year and a half. I would say it can be more beneficial for some in the most severe cases, and it seems it's mostly a, a last resort these days, but I'm never going off my meds again because I certainly Good. want to avoid uh, doing that whole thing again. Mm-hmm. As far as my memory aspect, I definitely remember extremely little from that period of time and the hypomania leading up to it, but that could be the bipolar disorder itself. It's hard to piece together. Anyway, hope this helps a little bit. If you have any more questions, please feel free to uh, to ask. I appreciate both of you so much for talking about a really difficult topic. I love you guys. Isn't that sweet? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What a great perspective. And it that to me it sounds like it's almost like a reset. Like that was the only way to kind of reboot. Reboot. Yeah. And um, we got a email as well. Um, kind of a different perspective that I really enjoyed from Allison. Uh, Allison said uh, that she works as a mental health therapist. Uh, she works in a psych ward that specializes in geriatrics. And she wrote this, we primarily treat people with some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's as well as mental illness. My husband also happens to be a psychiatrist and we still on occasion do use ECT. We use it for our refractory patients that don't respond to medications. Which is what the other uh, message was was implying. Yeah. 
So patients that cannot tolerate medications are considered for ECT. ECT has fewer side effects than most of the commonly used side uh, psych meds. And nowadays, she writes, we use such small doses of electricity and we paralyze and put the patient to sleep during the procedure. Again, what, yeah. what we just heard. Unlike the stories that you were telling where they kind of just tilted people back in a chair and yeah, stuffed a sock in their mouth. And moved on with their day. Mm. It goes on to talk about um, the memory loss that does sometimes take place um, and that she has seen ECT save patients lives. Wow. It really does work. It's not as scary as the movies make it out to be. Just thought you might be interested in someone who works in the field opinion. Thank you for the great podcast. Always look forward to it. Allison. Allison, thank you so much. I have said before I appreciate so much how smart you guys are. Yeah. Because there is so much. I think the reason I'm curious about so much is because I know so little. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> we have learned so much from you guys. What a great freak family we have. So I go first this week. No, I go first this episode. I'm really excited to tell you about this story. This this just blew my mind. And I think it's something that will pique your interest okay. as well. Okay. It's the true story of an historic figure. His name was Count de Saint-Germain. Ooh. Or the Count of Saint-Germain. Um, <laughs> or as we'd say it, the, the Count, Count of Saint-Germain. Saint <laughs> That's not how we talk. Well, some of us do. Some of us. So most accounts of his birth... People say that it was around 1690, somewhere in the 1690s. Okay. When did he die? Well, that's open to discussion. He is known as the Immortal Count. Oh. Oh, so he hasn't died. We don't know. Maybe he has. No. My guess is probably. Well, let's review, shall we? Okay. According to ThoughtCo and the book, The Count de Saint-Tremont, The Secret of Kings, they assert that uh, he was the son of Francis Rakosi II, the Prince of Transylvania. Oh. Now, there are other accounts that uh, are taken less seriously that say that uh, he was born way before that and maybe was even hanging around Jerusalem about the time Jesus was born. Oh, my. But what just about everybody agrees on is that Saint-Germain was very accomplished in the art of alchemy. Okay. Which, of course, is uh, the mystical, quote, science. It's magic science. Magic science strives to control the elements with the main goal, creation of what was called projection powder or the elusive philosopher's stone which, of course, would be added to a molten form of base metals and turn that into gold. It also was the elixir of life. Right. So the Count, it was believed, had discovered the secret of alchemy. Okay. And he, he started hanging around with European society. About 1742, this was after he had spent five years in the Shah of Persia's court, where apparently he had been uh, studying alchemy and he had learned the jeweler's craft, he kind of dazzled all the royal people and, you know, not just the royals, but the rich people with his vast knowledge of various topics. He knew so much about science and history. Uh, he had incredible musical abilities. Oh. He had remarkable easy charm and quick wit. People loved this guy. He spoke several languages fluently, French, German, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, Russian, English, and was familiar with Chinese, Latin, Arabic, and even Greek and ancient Sanskrit. Really? He was quite now, a, a learned fellow. I just, I'm, I'm interested to know how, not that I doubt that this is true, but I'm interested to know how... Someone would be able to verify that. I mean, did he hang out with people who spoke all those languages yeah. and could verify yeah. that? I don't know. This part of the story is based in fact. They can uh, attribute a lot of this to historical facts. They they know this guy existed. Mm -hmm. They know that he hung around with famous people okay. who, who actually quoted uh, no, you know, wrote things about him. Okay. They they uh, they can verify that he was extremely learned. That he spoke many, many, many languages. He was very intelligent. But then there became this uh, this legend that started to develop around him. 
that he never seemed to age. He never seemed to get older. There was one anecdote from 1760 that really kind of gave rise to this notion. He was in Paris that year, and Countess von Georgie had heard that there was a Count de Saint-Germain, and uh, he had arrived at a soiree at the home of Madame de Pompadour. Oh, my. And she was the mistress of, uh, was it King Louis the Fourteenth? Yeah, I don't know. I think so. Okay. The elderly countess was curious because she had known a Count de Saint-Germain while she was in Venice 50 years before, mm-hmm. in 1710. So upon meeting the Count again, she was astonished to see that it, it appeared as though he had not aged a day. So and she, it was the same guy? Well, she asked him, she said... Uh, are you the son of the man that I once knew in Venice? And he said, no, madam, uh, but I myself lived in in Venice at the end of the last, in the beginning of this century. And I had the honor to pay you court then. Oh, so he was saying I am the same guy. Yes. I'm not the son. I am the guy. And she went on to say, forgive me, but that is impossible. Say impossible. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yep, I bet that's exactly what yeah. she said. She said, the count I knew in those days was at least 45 years old, and you at the outside are that age at present. And he said, Madam, I am very old. And I guess he'd said it with like a knowing smile. And she said, but that would mean you were about 100 years old. And he said, that is not impossible. Very matter-of-factly. Then he continued to talk with her and convinced her he was the same guy by bringing up uh, certain things that only they would know. Interesting. Unless, I mean, it could have been. He was a con man. Right. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me Mm. entirely. So he traveled extensively throughout Europe over the next 40 years. Here are some of the many accomplishments that are attributed to to this man. He, He could play the violin like a virtuoso. He was a very accomplished painter. When he would travel, he would always set up some sort of a uh, an elaborate laboratory that he said was for his alchemy work. He seemed to be a man of great wealth, mm-hmm. although he never had any bank accounts. And many think it was due to the fact that he could create gold out of base metal because he was a successful alchemist. Or he was a con man and stolen <laughs> people's stuff. He dined often with friends because he enjoyed their company, but nobody ever saw him eat. So that's, I mean, exactly the same as you. Well, that's because you're a delicate little bird and you don't eat in front of people. <laughs> it's my social anxiety. <laughs> he subsisted it- we, at our old job. People used to refer to Jay as Tyra because he was a supermodel and uh, never ate. Yeah, that's what they used to say. <laughs> I did eat, it was just in closets. Sitting on the floor, crouched down, stuffing ho-hos in my, in my face hole. Any hoozle. Um, it was said that he, he lived on oatmeal. That he did, he did eat oatmeal, but he never ate anything else and he never ate in public. The okay. only thing he would do is drink in public. Sure. And it was always either a red-colored tea or red wine. Okay. He was known to prescribe recipes for the removal of facial wrinkles and for dyeing hair. He loved so ju- he's a hairdresser as well? <laughs> he loves jewels, uh-huh. or he loved, maybe he loves, I don't know, could maybe. be present tense. Uh, he loved jewels. A lot of his clothing, including his shoes, were just studded with them. He had a giant casket that he carried with him, full of precious gems. I'm sorry, he stored his yes. gems in a casket? Yes. Mm-hmm. What an eccentric fellow. He was certainly eccentric. He perfected a technique for painting jewels. I don't know. I've never heard of such a thing. I don't know. He claimed to be able to uh, fuse several small diamonds into one large one. He was also said to have been able to grow pearls to incredible sizes. He was linked to several secret societies, including the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, Society of uh, Asiatic Brothers, the Knights of Light, the Illuminati. It seems like an awful lot of secret societies that you're naming that make them not secret at all. And the Order of Templars. Now, he, as I mentioned, he hung out with a lot of nobility and famous people. The 18th century uh, philosopher Voltaire. Ooh, who, of course, is a, was himself a respected man of science and reason, said of, of Saint-Germain, he is, quote, a man who never dies, a man who knows everything. Oh, okay, that's yep. a pretty good reference. That's a pretty good reference. <laughs> <laughs> 
Throughout the 18th, 18th century, the Count continued to use uh, his endless knowledge, seemingly endless knowledge of the world in politics and social intrigue of European elites. In the 1740s, he became a, uh, a diplomat in the court of King Louis XIV of France. He performed secret missions for him in England. In 1760, he performed a similar function at The Hague, uh, where he met the infamous lover, Giacomo Casanova. Oh. And Casanova later wrote of Saint-Germain, this quote, this extraordinary man would say in an easy, assured manner that he was 300 years old, that he knew the secret of the universal medicine, that he possessed a mastery over nature and he could melt diamonds. All this, he said, was mere trifle to him, end quote. Uh, wow. That's interesting for sure. I have a question. Yeah. Do we know anything about his parents? Just according to the uh, the book, The Comte de Saint-Germain, The uh, Secret of Kings, that he was the son of Francis Rokosi II, the Prince of Transylvania. I mean, was he adopted or? Well, we don't know. Because he wouldn't have been 300 years old then. No. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. But like I said, they think it was in the 1690s. That's what they was thought. Was like a Thumbelina kind of situation? It, Wait, was it, that the one that was... Born in a I don't pumpkin. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not up on my Grimm's fairy tale. There was a story or... about a baby that was born in a gourd of some sort mm -hmm. and lived with people and then died. Man, that was a good story. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, he probably didn't didn't get born in a pumpkin. Saint Saint Germain. There are a lot of unanswered questions regarding this man. In 1762, he went to Russia. It was said that he was involved in a conspiracy that put Catherine the Great on the throne. Oh, really? Yeah. And later he advised the commander of the Imperial Russian armies in the war against Turkey, which they won. Can I just real quick mm -hmm. let you know that I found flights from Bangor to Bucharest for $1,400, and we would be there on our anniversary. I am never against traveling anywhere with you. <laughs> that sounds pretty rad, right? It certainly do. In 1774, he returned to France when Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette occupied the throne. He allegedly warned them of the revolution that was to come 15 years in the future. Wow. In 1779, he went to Hamburg, Germany, and he became the friend of uh, Prince Charles of Hesse Castle. Uh, for the next five years, he lived as a guest in the prince's castle. And according to local records, that is where he died on February 27th, 1847. However, there's a however, isn't there? Yeah. A year after he supposedly had died, he befriended Anton Mesmer and was uh, mm -hmm. Anton Mesmer was the pioneer of hypnosis, which is where we get the term mesmerized. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. That's yeah. really interesting. Oh, I said that weird. That's really interesting. Some even claim that Saint-Germain was the one who taught Mesmer the basic skill for hypnotism and personal magnetism. I see. Official records also show from the Freemasonry that they chose Saint-Germain as their representative for a convention in 1785. Wait a minute. This was after he supposedly had died. Weird. <laughs> I mean, it's just so weird that people keep referencing him and being like, oh, yeah, he taught me how to do this and blah, blah, blah. Right. We did this together. I mean, did he help Dale Carnegie write his book? Could very well have been. <laughs> it could very well have been. After the taking of the Bastille in the French Revolution in 1789, the Comtesse d'Adamar said she had a lengthy conversation with the Count. He allegedly told her of France's immediate future as if he knew what was to come. In 1821, she wrote, I have seen the Count again, each time to my amazement. The last time I saw him was in 1820. Each time he looked to be a man no older than in his mid-40s. So... Wow. So every time people reference having seen him, it was within his 40s. Yeah, he was in his 40s. After 1821, Saint-Germain may have taken on a different identity. In his memoirs, Albert Vandem wrote of meeting the Count, knowing who he was, but the Count insisted on being called Major Fraser. Quote, he called himself Major Fraser, lived alone, never alluded to his family. Moreover, he was lavish with money. 
Though the source of his fortune remained a mystery to everyone, he possessed a marvelous knowledge of all the countries in Europe at all periods. His memory was absolutely incredible. And curiously enough, he often gave his hearers to understand that he had acquired his learning elsewhere from books. Many is the time that he told me with a strange smile that he was certain he had known Nero. He had spoken with Dante and so on. Wow. This guy, Major Frazier, disappeared without a trace. Between 1880 and 1900, his name once again became prominent when members of the Theosophical Society, including the famed mystic Helena Blavatsky, claimed that he was still alive and working toward the, quote, spiritual development of the West. There is even a photo of Madame Blavatsky and another man who looks a lot like the old paintings of Saint-Germain. And allegedly, it is a genuine photo of her, of Madame Blavatsky and Saint-Germain together. So... In 1902, a man going by the name of Jacques Saint-Germain moves from France to New Orleans into the prestigious building at the corner of Ursulinus and Royal. Gosh, this sounds an awful lot like an Anne Rice story. It do. Less porn, though. <laughs> Which is too bad. I could work some in if you want. <laughs> now we're fine. Then he grabbed his bulbous French. Nope. Um, it was said that he had uh, immigrated from the south of France and he was a descendant of Count Saint-Germain. Mm-hmm. According to CoolInterestingStuff.com, his first introduction into New Orleans society was a party that he threw. He invited all the famous people, the politicians, uh, high society dignitaries, and he fed them from a catered menu. The finest china was used, the best silverware. And he just ate oatmeal? He did not eat a bite. He did drink what appeared to be red wine. And that, I guess, offended New Orleans high society. He did not eat with them. So even though he was immensely rich, he didn't quite fit in. He was described as being charming, highly intelligent, a master of many languages. Why does it concern you what somebody else eats? That was that was society. In I the don't day. care for that attitude at all. <laughs> that's that's my feeling. Okay, uh, we welcome yours. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the company that he kept, uh, and the fact that he was known. <laughs> To party a lot, apparently he liked to hang out on Bourbon Street, kept him from being accepted by the elitists. That and the fact that he wouldn't eat with them. They found that offensive. Jacques Saint-Germain didn't come back into attention until uh, police took notice of him. Jacques had picked up a woman in a local pub and he'd taken her back to his house. Mm -hmm. The woman later finds herself at a police station and she tells him the story that she, she went up to his house. She was on the second floor. And she was admiring some beautiful items that were on the mantle of his marble uh, fireplace. Okay. And she said, with the speed and strength in full use, he pressed me against the mantle and began biting viciously at my neck. Now, as luck would have it, at that very moment, some of Jacques' rowdy friends began banging on the door and wanted him to go out and hit a few bubs with him, I guess. And so she broke away from him and leapt through a window out the second story window over the balcony that surrounds the property onto the brick street below. And, and she broke a couple of her, she broke her legs in a couple of places and her desperate screams drew police. And that's how she ended up at the police station. Now uh-huh. Jacques was questioned that night and he said that, uh, no, she was drunk and decided to jump on her own. Police asked if Jacques could come down to the station in the morning to give a formal statement. It's so, Be- such a polite was, way yeah. to deal with a potential rapist slash murderer. Well, he was rich. So. Yeah, um, so he said he'd come down in the morning, but he never appeared. So police went to his house the next day and uh, the house was totally empty. Everything was gone. They inspected his house and they were a little confused by what they find. There were bloodstains all over the table. And some of the clothes in the house. And it looked like that they had come from different time periods, that they it wasn't from all one bloodletting, if you will. There were no utensils, no plates, just a collection of wine bottles and wine glasses. And some of the bottles were filled with red wine. But when they tasted it, they said it. they thought it was a mixture of wine and blood. Interesting. So he just disappears. Mm-hmm. In the 1970s, a guy named Richard Chanfrey shows up on the scene, and he claims that he is actually the Count. Why would he do that? I don't know. I'm just reporting. All you right, decide. fine. He went on a television show, and he claimed that he could change lead into gold. And 
Apparently, he did, using a camp stove on the show, he was able to turn lead into gold, or at least that's what it appeared to be. Mm -hmm. He, he, you know, could have been a a clever magician. I don't know. I'm just reporting. Fine. So being very defensive about this. In 1983, Chanfrey ended his life by suicide, but it was reported by a local news source that they had seen him afterwards and they claimed he faked his suicide and is still alive to this day. What? Back in New Orleans, shortly after that, a guy named Jack St. Germain shows up and apparently is still there. There have been numerous numerous reports even to this day that this mysterious person, sometimes known just as Jack, will often harass rich tourists and locals. He uh, seems to be extremely wealthy. He displays amazing speed and strength. So to this day, if you go to New Orleans and you see a well-dressed man named Jack, um, run for it. Oh, no. I would say investigate. Definitely get to know that guy. Swipe right or left, whichever one it is. I'm not sure. He's a pretty good looking guy. Here's a picture of him next to a 17th century portrait of Count Saint-Germain. So this is the Jack guy. And then... This is the Chanfrey guy. Oh, this is Chanfrey. Yeah. So that would have been circa 1970. That explains the shirt. So that's a 300-year difference there. I don't... I mean... You know... It doesn't I mean, look a, really it, that... It, it does, to me, the eyebrows. I guess it's hard to say from a painting especially. to a picture. To there a was a lot of artistic license taken, you know, back in the day when painters would paint royalty. They would paint them in their best light or elites, not just royalty. And so a lot of the paintings weren't really very accurate, so it's it's hard to say. But you can't rule that out by saying, no, that's not him. It could be. We'll post it. And again, you decide, was Jack an alchemist? Was he like Highlander? Was he a vampire? I mean, he's not Highlander. Let's not, let's not go crazy. Was he a vampire? That's really interesting. I... I'm familiar with the name. I did not know of this storied history slash possible vampirism. Um, But it does sound very much like Interview with the Vampire. Maybe that inspired Anne Rice. Yeah, that's very interesting. I don't know. Faux show. Faux show. It's the part of the podcast that's been told it looks like child star Mason Reese and takes it as a compliment. This is That Thing in the Middle. A thing in the middle today that we have touched upon before and talked about making it a series, and I'm glad that we have because I love this, and it's really about me. These are unusual collective names for animals. There are so many. A collection of frogs is known as an army. An army of frogs. Some of these really make a lot of sense. Like number four, a stand of flamingos. That, that does make sense. Right? And so does this. Number three, A tower of giraffes. Of course they're called a tower. I love it. Number two, a bale. A bale of turtles. (laughs) A bale of them. What? Okay. And number one, a barrel of monkeys. It's a thing. What? Yes. The saying a barrel full of monkeys and you just think of monkeys coming in a barrel. First of all, they don't come in a barrel. But... A barrel is what they call a collection of monkeys. I love it. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer the only podcast you're listening to at this exact moment don't think we don't notice things like that this is the box of oddities i got my glasses adjusted today so they sit on my face a lot better which is nice they don't they don't slide down your nose right i have to have that done too this we went to a fancy pants event a while ago and i didn't wear my glasses uh which was a mistake by the way but anyway um about three times during the evening i pushed my glasses up onto my face Mm. even though i wasn't wearing my glasses (laughs) so eventually i said you know what you gotta get those fixed so i've i fixed them now and i feel like i'm ready I'm ready. Okay. Okay. They feel great, by the way. You look determined. Thank you for asking. Okay. Okay. Influential American neurologist Silas Weir Mitchell was worried about Americans and the advances in technology that led to people doing too much too fast. Have we lived too fast? He asked. In his 1871 book, Wear and Tear, he spoke to the cruel competition for the dollar and the racing speed which the telegraph and the railway introduced into commercial life. Oh, this is beautiful. I love a futuristic look at society from 150 years ago. Well, what Silas decided to do with this conundrum blew my mind. Okay, here we go. Where was I? Okay. So this is how he came to develop the rest cure. The rest cure. I'm ready. So Mitchell studied at Philadelphia's renowned University of Pennsylvania and later earned a degree of MD at the city's Jefferson Medical College in 1850. And during the Civil War, he was director of treatment of nervous injuries and maladies at Turner's Lane Hospital in Philadelphia. He became a specialist in neurology. He actually coined the phenomenon phantom limb syndrome. No kidding, which is an amazing topic in and of itself. Right, yeah, yeah. So as a quickly ascending physician in the fledgling field, he was awarded the title Father of American Neurology. Interesting. All right. So I don't know what this sentence was supposed to say, but it says, so people were in when developed the rest cure. (laughs) That don't make no sense. All right. So it's the 1800s. And the rest cure is decidedly the thing 
when it comes to treatment of hysteria and other nervous illnesses. Modernity, he posited, could deplete finite stores of nervous energy, which would leave bodies and minds exhausted and sick. So you have a certain amount of energy within you. Um, It's finite. You use it. You're done. There are people who still believe that. Our president is one of them. Yes. Yeah. That's why he doesn't exercise. Right. He says he doesn't want to use up his energy. Yeah. He's like a battery. He's like a battery. So exhausting your battery, if you will, could lead to headaches, lethargy, weight loss, impotence. Uh, For men, the antidote was simple. Go west. Chop wood. Have a fire. Cook some beans over that fire. Get back to basics. Get back to the basics. Get yourself away from that telegraph machine, (laughs) which is obviously so modern and harmful, and cook things over a fire. Women, though, the, the solution was a little more complex, particularly for women of means. The urban elite, as they were called. The cure was different. The white upper-class, educated woman uh, became the dominant demographic. Mitchell typically forbade his patients from rising at all. From getting out of bed? Not even a little. Holy Not even sitting up in bed. I love this guy. It's rough. For how long? The women in these situations were allowed up into a sitting position for spoon feeding or getting up to relieve themselves. No more. Outside of that, they were to lay down. That's it. Could they lie on their side or just on their back flat? Nurses would help them roll. What? So in particularly extreme cases, this period of the quote unquote cure could be stretched to months. Oh, my God. Generally, it would last between six and eight weeks. Um, Yeah. Nurses would clean and feed them and turn them over in bed. Doctors used massage and electrotherapy to maintain muscle tone. I'm going to let Champ do his thing. What's up, buddy? He's just lying down next to you. Cool. He's assuming farting position. Also, nearly constant feeding was part of the cure. Fatty, milk-based diets (laughs) were the thing. Patients were force-fed if necessary, effectively reduced to the dependency of an infant. In fact, Mitchell wrote that it was nearly impossible to cure these maladies to treat these patients in the way that that he was planning to without milk. He requested his patients consume two quarts or more a day. And I'm assuming this was cow's milk. This is cow's milk. This is raw, whole cow's milk. Non-pasteurized, non-homogenized, just raw. None of this pansy milk. No, no. No, thick... Chunky, fatty, manly milk. Syrupy milk. It was doled out exclusively to the resting patient for the first few days and then later supplemented with high fat, high caloric meals. In uh, some cases, Mitchell suggested real food be swapped out for quote unquote children's food, such as malted milk or Nestle's food. Nestle's food? Mm hmm. Like Nestle's chocolate? Like, I think, a powdered milk. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. It was milk and milk alone. Good Lord. He noted that the milk consumed in excess gave rise to extreme sleepiness. He writes this. A white and thick fur on the tongue, as well as often a time of unpleasant Swedish taste in the morning. Neither of these should be regarded. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, you don't want to worry about that white, thick film on your tongue. Mm. No worries. You're fine. Just lay there. We'll be in to roll you over later. The second phase allowed the patients to sit up more frequently. However... And this was after a, a, a number of weeks. At least. Good God. Reading, writing, drawing, doing anything that required the mind remained forbidden. This is beginning to sound like a really demented form of torture. It's horrendous. At first, it sounded great. Just laying there? Yeah, and having people feed you. 
<laughs> that's my dream. But I want to be able to call an end to it when I wish. Nope. And that's kind of the point here is so often uh, the patients were not allowed to call an end to it. Hmm. They were strictly forbidden. So they couldn't opt out. No. Oh, my God. Mitchell believed the point of the rest cure was both physical and moral. It boosted the patient's weight and increased, quote unquote, blood supply. It also removed the patient from anything that would allow them to be social or independent in any way. Because the the fast-paced life slash the... uh, social nature of women in these days was really a concern. Sure. You want to slow things down. You don't want women being promiscuous. So what would be better than strapping them into a bed and force feeding them dairy product? Well, yeah. And if by promiscuous, you mean reading. Right. Yeah, exactly. You don't want women reading. That just leads to all sorts of sin. And that's still true to this day. (laughs) Right. Her face is just becoming really flushed and angry looking. Them's jokes, baby. I know. Them's I know. just jokes. I know, I know, I know, I know. So some outspoken women of the time actually received the rest cure. Names that you would recognize. Virginia Woolf. Uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Really? They reacted fiercely against the treatment and the doctors practicing it and wrote about their experiences in... Living of Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which was written in 1935, Gilman describes her experience as follows. I was put to bed and kept there. I was fed, bathed, rubbed, and responded with vigorous body of 26, which I think means that she was massaged heartily. Hmm. As far as he could see, there was nothing the matter with me. So after a month of this agreeable treatment, he sent me home with this prescription. Live as domestic a life as possible. Have your child with you at all times. Lie down an hour after each meal. Have but two hours intellectual life a day and never touch a pen, brush, or pencil (laughs) as long as you live. Oh my God. That doesn't sound like sound advice. Uh, First of all, let's start with the having children by your side at all times, that is not going to cure your nervous condition. (laughs) That is going to aggravate it. And I could go on from there, but I won't. Gilman wrote, she came, quote, perilously near to losing my mind. The mental agony grew so unbearable that I could sit blankly moving my head from side to side. She wrote a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper. You right, may recognize sure. it. Yeah, yeah. And that is semi-autobiographical. It includes some embellishments, but it is creepy AF. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a movie, too. Is it? Yep. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I um, listened to The Yellow Wallpaper some time ago, and just listening to it gave me the heebies yeah. hardcore. Indeed, indeed. So this cure <clears throat> was a real catch-all for any sort of women's problems, anxiety, depression, especially postpartum depression. And it was obviously not effective and essentially drove some people mad um, because when you're taking people who are already depressed and you are taking away anything that they can do with their mind right any distraction at all any sort of distraction just leave you alone in your room with your thoughts and and dairy product that's it so keep in mind this this cure is only for those with the money to pay for a nurse to to mm. to be able to lay dormant in a room which at one point uh mitchell actually referred to this as a hibernation of sorts Mm -hmm. um those who couldn't afford the private psychiatric care ended up in public asylums they uh, received no care at all in some cases and their suffering um isn't part of the medical history of america you know it's just left out because they didn't have the means to seek these outrageous, quote unquote, cures. That reminds me of a book that I read, and I will dig through my collection and find out uh, the title of it. But and we can post it on our Goodreads page. But it was about that sort of thing. They were trying to determine who these people were in Victorian age and Edwardian age asylums by going through abandoned luggage they found in the attics 
of some of these asylums. Oh my goodness. There actually was luggage still in the attic from people who either died or disappeared or just left it there. Letters, clothing, personal belongings. It's a fascinating read. It's a little dry, but it but it is fascinating. So beyond the obvious mental side effects, which it would take me approximately 17 hours before I would lose my friggin' shit. Yeah. Um, I no. Especially if someone was telling me, like, you're not allowed to read. <laughs> I <laughs> Bring me the works of Shakespeare. Skew me. No, thank you. Um uh, it's it's just it's it's terrifying, this concept that these women were trapped and that, you know, eh. when you look at the the juxtaposition, the men were sent out to go on these adventures yep. to express their manliness and the women were <laughs> trapped in their beds not to read or write ever again. Sure. It's... Sounds fair. The worst. Extended bed rest has also not been proven to have any beneficial side effects of any condition at all. Oh, champ's getting fancy. Mm. Do you want to go lay down? Go lay down. Come on, champ. Thank you. Lay down on the bed. Lay down on your mattress. There you Good go. boy. Good nice. boy. It's 516, by the yeah, way. It's why they're getting all antsy. I know, honey. Bed rest was not fully debunked until World War II when physicians noticed that extended periods of repose were not incredibly effective in helping soldiers recover. So immobilization was, in fact, harmful to the body um, when they were trying to get these soldiers better. Sure. Sure, that makes sense. Negatively affecting every organ in their systems. And I imagine their psyche as well, too. For sure. Yeah. And it took... The effects on men <laughs> to create a situation where doctors would back off for this cure. Ah, uh, for, for women. For women. Well, those were different times. <sighs> Legitimately, it, the men of World War II recovering from their injuries were the only reason that doctors took a second look at this cure for women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and slowly but surely stopped prescribing it. How long did they prescribe this treatment for? I mean, when did they end it? It was right around the end of World War II. Right after the war. Okay. Right. All right. So the yellow wallpaper, if you have not read it, I would highly suggest it. And if you can listen to it, do that. Apparently there's a movie. Yeah, I think what, it was on, I saw it on Amazon a while ago. Okay, so, so we yeah. have to watch this. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's it's amazing and, and, and a wonderful glimpse into something so awful. And it's... It is a thing that you hear the the beginnings of and you go, oh, that sounds great. But then you actually think about what that would be like to be forced to be immobile mm. for months yeah. at a time. Yeah. And I can't see how it wouldn't have driven people mad if they were already, especially in a fragile state, I if know. you will. I know. And again, when, when somebody is depressed or exhausted or whatever... The last thing you want to do is just be alone with your thoughts. And and it's good to, it's better to go and talk to people and be social and. Right. Yeah. But that's one of the reasons that especially these outspoken women um, did such a a great job of speaking out against this cure because it was effectively a way hmm. to stop women from being Edumacated? Individuals. It was a way to say, no, no, oh, this social life, it's too much for you. You can't mm. handle it. Your nervous yeah. system can't handle it. Blah, blah, blah. And, and it was a way to keep women in line, effect- effectively turning them into children so that they would be there and available for the things that you needed them to be available for, but, but not actual human people. And it's horrendous. And that's the father of modern neurology. <laughs> Amen. I can't think of much worse than than being than yeah. being immobilized well, and I'm, treated like a child and against your will too. I mean, you I guess you can't read, you can't write, you can't draw. Don't ever pick up a pen ever again. Ever. 
It's too much for your tiny little brain. When, and this started, you said, in the late 1800s or so? It was in 1871 that okay. he wrote Wear and Tear, which is where he's asking that question, sure. have we lived too fast? And he was in the process of kind of creating this cure. So even back then, I mean, you're, you're, you're in the bed, you're isolated, you can't do it. The internet sucked back then. Right. It was wood burning internet. It was all like, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you had to fire up the internet with literal fire, <laughs> and um, it was steam powered. I think, actually. yeah, absolutely, is, is what it was. <laughs> <clears throat> so Netflix, you know, kind of sucked back then. And sure. Yes, I know it's dinner time. <laughs> Who needs clocks? No, we don't need clocks. No. Well, that's fascinating, disturbing, and uh, I'm glad you shared it. Even though it is disturbing, it is uh, indeed. Um, a story I had not heard. Well, that's fascinating and disturbing. And even though it is disturbing, I'm glad you shared it with me. I had I'd never heard of this before. Well, there you go. That's yeah. the rest cure. Yeah. At first, it did sound good, mm-hmm. you know, about <laughs> being forced to stay in bed and, and eat cheese. That sounded pretty good. But I think I would grow tired of that after seven or eight months, probably. <laughs> Someone's ready for dinner. All right. The box of oddities. Two times a week. Two times. Two times a week oh. it's a little jingle that we just came up with on the spot for you oh i was doing the um slide to the left bow, bow. i can't remember what that is right now but oh my god crisscross um, down i'm gonna have to prescribe bed rest and milk for you i for think that. i need a cruise i think that's what it's telling me <laughs> we look forward to seeing you on monday Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.